0: All right, so up to this point, we've considered uh, a few things as we've looked at the the birth of the church and the promise of the Holy Spirit being um, uh, given to the the disciples and the the witness and the testimony that uh, had taken place through them up to this point. And uh, we looked at last week just this. Um, occurrence of the the Peter and John being arrested and and I want to recount all of that but I do want to remind you that prior to Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven we know that he spent much time preparing his disciples right for the time when he would no longer be with them in the flesh and Jesus began to prepare prepare his disciples back in Matthew chapter 16 when he asked them this question he was challenging them. You know, the, the crowds of people were saying certain things about Jesus. They were saying he was John the Baptist, and others say he was one of the prophets. And and Jesus said, "You know, what do you guys say? Who do you say I am?" And of course, Peter answered, and he said, "You're the Christ. You're the Son of the Living God." And we know that Peter's answer was right. It was correct. It was the truth. It is the truth of who Jesus is, and and Peter was uh, complimented. He was commended for his answer, but. But what I want to point out is is that after that took place, Jesus continued to speak to his disciples and prepare him for this time that we're reading of now, a time when he would no longer be with them, the church would have been birthed, and, 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 and the gospel message would have been going out. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said this. He made this promise. He said, the gates of hell would not prevail against them. He said specifically, against his church. And Jesus broke this promise because he knew. He knew that his disciples would be attacked and that they would have opposition um, uh, and adversaries as they went out with the mission of saving souls from hell and teaching people all the things that Jesus had taught them and baptizing them in his name. And so Jesus sought to assure them with a promise telling them that even though the opposition would come, even though that Satan, their adversary, would come against them and against the work that they were doing, that that he would not prevail, that God's work would prevail. And as we've made our way through chapter 4, we've read about this opposition that came to the early church, that it came in the midst of all these spiritual opportunities that had been opened up to them. And now, as we move into chapter 5, we're going to read again about additional um, opposition, Uh, another attack, if you will, by Satan to try and destroy the work of God. Initially, the religious leaders that made up the Sanhedrin, who we read about last week, they failed in their attempt to silence the witness of the church. But what we know is that um, Satan, the devil, he just he didn't give up. He, he never gives up. He simply changes his strategy, and we see that in this account. He, he changed his strategy. Remember, the first approach had been to intimidate the church, to attack the church from the outside. The religious leaders were arresting them and, 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 and threatening them and in, in the hope that they would be frightened into silence. But I love it that the early church, they weren't frightened. They rallied together. As a matter of fact, they prayed. That's how we ended last week as we, we read their prayer. They, they prayed that they would receive courage and boldness through the feeling of the Holy Spirit to continue to speak God's word in the face of the, the adversity, in the, in, even in the, the midst of these attacks. And as a result, they pressed forward. And they continued to take ground for the kingdom of God. So when Satan's initial attack failed, we see that he turned to another plan of attack. In that he wanted to, he we see that he, had church, he attacked a church from the inside. And he used people who were a part of that early church to bring forth some disruption. To try to cause disunity and discourage the work of God. And in light of what we're going to read in these next chapters, not just chapter 5, but of this kind of persecution and suffering and tax that came upon the early church, and we know that, that it's still happening today, and I believe that as we see the end drawing near that we're going to experience more of this ourselves as we, we take clear stands for, for God and for God's way. As we n- must be aware that our adversary, we talked about we have adversaries, but we also need to understand that our adversary is clever, and we'd like nothing better to bring division and strife from within, even within our own fellowship, to cause disunity and discouragement. In other words, let me put it this way. the, the Bible refers to the devil with a certain terminology. Uh, in First Peter chapter 1 verse, or chapter five, verse eight, it tells us that he comes as a devouring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. and so we know that if he can't succeed as a devouring lion, a lion he, he switches tactics. Why I know that because the Bible also tells us in second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 that he's a deceiving serpent and we're warned against the deceptions and the lies of, of Satan who will come and try to trick us and, and, and corrupt us from the simplicity that is in Christ. And, and lastly we're even told in second Corinthians chapter 11 verses 13 through 15 that ain't, that, that Satan, and his, his minions, his, his workers of darkness will also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. In other words, they will appear to be something that they're not. And within the church, we even refer to this perhaps as, as false teachers who are, who are um, wolves in, in sheep's clothing, right? In Second in Corinthians, we're told there are false apostles, deceitful wor- workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And Paul says, and no wonder, for Satan himself also transforms himself into an angel of light. And th- those things need to be um, attention getters for us. We need to look at those, look at, look at that, those, those different lenses uh, of by which we might be attacked. See, Jesus told us in in John chapter eight, verse forty-four, that Satan's a murderer and a liar. And we, the church, must be a- aware of this and prepared. Prepared for the attacks that will come against us, the external attacks and the attacks from within. I'm telling you, personally, I have expected the attacks from without, but whenever an attack comes from within, whenever there's a betrayal within the church, right? or if you've ever faced a betrayal in your own life, you know that always seems to hurt more. number one, and it kind of catches us off guard. We well, you know, I never expected that. well, we need to expect it. I think the early church, by what we read in chapter 5 here, didn't expect what had happened. I think that they were prepared and they dealt with it in a right way, but I think it caught them off guard, not expecting that. And I think we should not be caught off guard. And I believe that Jesus had prepared his disciples for these attacks... And 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 the ones that we'll read about and have read in chapter four, we'll read in chapter five, and and the, and and the ones that will come that we'll read about. But I believe that the church had a, a, a measure of preparedness because they succeeded rather quickly in the first part of the Great Commission. These attacks, the ones from without and the ones from within, they didn't derail them from the message. They didn't derail them from the mission. And, and we know that quite quickly, all of Jerusalem was filled with the teachings of Jesus in spite of the opposition, in spite of the enemy's plan. So let's begin. I'll read uh, the end of chapter 4, looking and starting in verse 32. And then we'll move our, make our way from there. It says in verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say anything or say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostle gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of these things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Father, I pray as we read on through the book of Acts and look at the things that are, uh, have been accounted and recorded here for us, that we would have understanding, discernment for our lives today, Lord, that we would be encouraged As we see that um, you still have a plan and purpose for the church that you're working in and through us today into this world, Lord, which seems to be dark, which seems to be lost. But Lord, we know that um, your grace and your mercy is enough still today, that the work that your son did on the cross still has the power to save those who will believe. And so, Lord, may we continue on with the mission as we look at the example of the early church. May we do it with boldness and courage, Lord, in the face of opposition. In Jesus' name, we pray, Amen. All right. So as we start our study with these final verses of chapter four, we're reminded of the the early church, who they were and what they were like. Say we're told they had one heart and one soul; they were of one mind. Literally is what that means. Um, and I point this out because today there are many people out there who are looking for a church that are saying, "I'm looking for a spirit-filled church, right? I want to. I want to have. I want to go to a church that's." Spirit-filled, where there's life, where there's vitality, where God's working, and 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 um, they ask that question. You know, what is a spirit-filled church, or what is it supposed to look like? What is it supposed to 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 be doing? Meaning, a church that is uh, full of spiritual life and full of vitality as they minister uh, the word of God and do the work of God, and even though. There are many different opinions out there. I took the opportunity to survey and ask that question of many people that I came in contact with this week. You know, what what would you say a spirit-filled church looks like? What do you what do you think a spirit-filled church is about? What are they doing? And 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 as I was asking that question, I got a lot of great answers, but I was also coming to this passage of scripture because I think we're given some a, a biblical answer, if you will, and an example with the early church as we're told Literally that they were a spirit-filled church. And what do I mean by that? Number one, what we see as far as attributes of this early church, as we read here in these verses, they were of one heart and one soul. They were in unity. I think that's important. If we are, if, if Christ is the head and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, and we're submitting to the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit and living in the Spirit, then we will be of one heart and one small soul we'll be on the same page together moving forward together as as one united in christ and and through the power of the holy spirit but also we're told they were filled with great power in order that they could give witness of the resurrection of jesus they were on task they had a mission and they were on task together through the power of the holy spirit they were out giving witness of the resurrection of jesus And then lastly, I think this is so important, and I love this because I believe this to be true about our church. This this church is a church of grace. Great grace is upon us. We have been recipients of God's grace, and we are bestowers of God's graces. We are ministers of God's grace to those around us. And that's what we read here is that great grace, God's unmerited favor, was upon all of them. And it's these three attributes, I think, that must be present in order for a church to be considered a spirit-filled church. And the disciples, after they were filled with power of the Holy Spirit, they responded, did they not? We've read this earlier. By preaching, by going out, by preaching Jesus' death and resurrection, and also the need for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And and as a result, thousands were being saved. The Lord was adding to the church daily as He saw fit. But there there was this real and practical problem now of what to do with those who had been saved. These new believers, remember, most of them were not from Jerusalem. They had come here at this time to celebrate two of the feasts the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. And because of the mighty work that was going on, you know, people weren't going home. That's the short of it. They were remaining there. The feasts were over, but yet they were staying. And they were there because they wanted to be a part of God's work, they wanted to continue to hear the teachings of the apostles. All the things that Jesus had taught them, they were now teaching the people. And as a result, there were lots of needs. It's estimated at this time that there was 25,000 people, historians believe, in the early church at this time. Those gathered together of one heart and one soul. There was yet none, we're told, among them who had lacked anything. It's not that they didn't have things, it's not that these people were beggars and poor, it's just they were all gathered together, they were all staying there, and so those there in Jerusalem who had stuff were beginning to provide for the needs of those who were still far away from their home. And we read read about Barnabas here, who's mentioned by name in verse 36. Men like him, he wasn't the only one, but those who were willing to share what they had, even to the point where they were selling their excess things so that no one lacked anything. Remember, part of the reason they were doing this isn't just because they wanted to remain there and be a church body and a church family, it's because they believed Jesus was coming back. They believed his return was imminent. I don't think the Bible, as we read this, is suggesting that we today should go and sell everything that we have and we should go and live in a commune together somewhere. I've heard biblical cases being made for that from this passage, and I think it's, it's foolishness. In fact, church history, which accounts many attempts to do this, reveals just how foolish this is. We're called to be in the world, not of the world. We're called to live among those who are in the world and bring the light, to shine the light into a dark place. We can't do that if we're just huddled up together. And that wasn't the intent. That wasn't the heart of the early church anyway when we look at this in context What was going on is this. This is is this this example, this heart that they had. And and, and it's a heart that we need to have. And it's a heart to give to others. It's a heart of others-centeredness. And this is the type of heart and mind that he calls his church to have. A Spirit-filled church will have that heart and mind. They're other centered They're giving. And I think that this heart that we're called to have moves us to prayerfully ask, who I can help, where I can help, how and what can I give in order to glorify God's kingdom here on this earth. And that is, we need to remember, and we need to keep a biblical perspective, and I want to bring that up every time we look at this call to be a giver. Remember, we're called to be stewards of the things that God has given us. Scripture says, what do you have that you have not been given and received? And Christians are called to be a people who possess the things of this life, but take no ownership of them. Think about that for a second. I think we get that whacked. We live in this world that has such an influence on us that we lose that godly perspective. What I have is not my own. God's entrusted it to me. God's entrusted what you have to you, and we need to be using that in such a way that He sees fit. And it's important for us as we look at this text here to see the generosity which flowed out of the people who made up the church in Jerusalem, which was the direct result, I believe, of that great grace that we read about being upon them. That God had poured out upon them. Remember in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we're simply told this, that we love because God first loved us. We love because God first loved us. And so when we respond to the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the appointments that are set up by us for the Holy Spirit... When we respond to the Holy Spirit and give or help others, it's always in response to the great grace of God that is given to us. Look at what God has abundantly blessed me with, and I want to bless others around me. That's the heart. That's the motivation. So it's safe to conclude that the church in Jerusalem was a spirit-filled church, not just because of the miracles that were being done through them. There was many miraculous things that were being done through them. We'll read in chapter 5 with some pretty crazy stuff when we go on of the miraculous things. But here's the reason why I think we can conclude they were a Spirit-filled church. It was because they had love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That was flowing out of them as a result of the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so we must conclude that the working of miracles, because some people would say that a, a Spirit-filled church is one where miraculous things is is taking place i think that's part of it but it's not the evidence of it primarily in fact the apostle paul wrote in his letter to the galatians about the outward evidences of a person not just a church but a person who is filled with the holy spirit and and we make up the church and so it it reasons to conclude that these things would be evident what is it The fruit of the spirit right love joy peace long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and again, self-control. And as a result of these godly attributes in the lives of the the, the followers of Jesus who made up the early church, we see that this spirit-filled church in Jerusalem was unified. There are three key attributes that we see here that was the result of it, unity. They were unified, we're told. How do I know that? It says, of one heart and one soul. Furthermore, we're, we're told that they were magnified, meaning... Those around them had a high regard for them. And lastly, we've seen in in, in in the text here that they were multiplied as we're told that God was adding to them daily. A, a, a church that is spirit-filled is a church that is alive, and you will see growth. I think you'll see spiritual growth, but you will also see growth in numbers as God is adding to it. Where there is life, there are these things. There are these things. And my prayer is that we here at our church that we would be other-centered, that we would be God-loving, Holy Spirit-filled, and that we would have the heart and the mind of Jesus. But hear this, even though a church, and even our church, and others like ours, and and, and, and the other church, even though a church may be all of these things, it's no guarantee that it that there won't be internal problems, internal attacks, and even disappointments. Look, we read of that here in, in chapter 5. It says, as we read on, but, <laughs> and that's, that, that but can be a good thing at times, and other times it can reveal a not so good thing. In this instance, we read about how the church was just on fire, and they had one heart and one soul, and they were doing the work of God, and there was great power, and there was all this wonderful stuff going on, but a certain man, we read here, Named Ananias, with Sapphira and his wife sold a possession. And he 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 kept back part of the possession, the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part of it and laid it down at the apostles' feet. Very similar to what we read about with Barnabas, right, earlier. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? In other words, he's saying you could have done anything you wanted with it. And after it was sold, was it not in your control? I mean, after you sold it, you could could give it all. You could give none. You could keep it. But he says, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And what we see is is that he, he, he revealed that he sold it for a certain amount. And he gave an amount to the church and said that's the amount that he sold it for. He lied. He kept some back. And then... And Ananias, hearing these words of Peter, right, fell down and breathed his last breath. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I would imagine so. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later that his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, "Tell me whether you sold the land for so much." And she said, "Yes, for so much." And Peter said to her, "How is it that you have agreed?" meaning with her husband, to test the Spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. And again, I imagine there was great fear, but can you imagine this happening today? Could you imagine that happening here today? I think most of us can probably imagine the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in the church today, but not the falling dead down part, not the falling down dead part for those who were being hypocritical, those who were lying, those who were in sin. But I suspect if this was happening today, I, I, I suspect that we would all take our Christian walk and really, as we see this, a call to purity. A call to holiness, a call to honesty a little bit more seriously, would we not? George MacDonald, he's a late 1800s minister and professor at the University of London, an author, he wrote this and once said, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Man, that's a true statement. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look Instead of trying to be what one is not. And every time I read this account of Ananias and Sapphira, I'm, I'm intrigued to what was going on in their minds. Why they did what they did. What was happening here? As I try to understand what was going on, I, I really suspect that greed was involved. But like Peter said, it was theirs, right? It was theirs to begin with. And no one was forcing them to give what was already theirs. So maybe in addition to greed, they were compelled by pride. I think that was a huge part of it. I think they were compelled by their pride and schemed together as they were envious of of Barnabas and others who had received attention from giving their proceeds of the sale of their land to the church. But I also wonder, as I consider this account, how Peter must have felt when Ananias and Sapphira dropped in down dead and breathe their last breath as a result of their deception, as a as their, as their result of their unwillingness to tell the truth. Peter was given the opportunity to speak the truth and they, they, they held on to their lie. They were unwilling to repent. I think it's part of the reason why we see the severity of it at this time in the actions that took place. And I don't know about you, but if I was Peter and I was in this situation, I'd be shocked. I'd be like, I didn't expect that to happen. I don't think anyone expected that to happen. But I would also cause me to go, okay, Lord, if there's any sin in me, I need to repent of it right now. I don't want that to happen to me. And even though there are many things for us to speculate about, what we know for sure is that God gave Peter discernment, right? God revealed to Peter what Ananias and Sapphira had done, how they had tried to deceive the people into thinking that they were better than they really were. You get that? They were presenting to be someone they were not. And the name that Jesus gives to this kind of behavioral practice is this word hypocrisy. And I think we should understand a couple of things in light of that. First of all, I want us to understand that failure to reach a moral standard is not hypocrisy. Please hear this. Failure to... To reach a moral standard is not hypocrisy. And I point this out because I think we as believers are often accused of that, of being hypocrites, referred to hypocrisy because we don't live up to the standards in the Bible. But listen, a failure to live up to God's standard does not make us a hypocrite, it simply makes us a sinner, which we all are. Just like everyone else. And in contrast, hypocrisy is a deliberate deception. It is an attempt to make people think that we are something we are not. Uh, Perhaps in regards to faith and those kinds of things, we want to present ourselves to be more spiritual than we really are, and we're not honest about our spiritual and emotional state of being. And so when we act as hypocrites, we might be able to deceive some people around us, but like Ananias and Sapphira, we see with them, we're never going to be able to deceive God. God always knows. The Bible says that God sees into the heart past the mask, past the outward behavior. He even knows the motive, the thoughts, and the intents of our hearts. And because God can see where no one else can see, and because He loves us, what we see here is that He will reveal those deceptions. He's going to bring it to light. Allow for our sin to be found out. And 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 um, we might think it's extreme what we read here, in regards to God's response to this with Ananias and Sapphira but God killed them and that's the word we should use he did he killed them because of their hypocrisy as an example to those around them as an example for us today furthermore Ananias and and Sapphira they what they did must be seen in the context of the of the time listen the church had just been birthed it was a critical stage for the church and 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 such impurity and an unwillingness to turn from it, an unwillingness to repent of the sin, Satan could have used that as we talk about having an adversary and, and, and someone who attacks us. It could have corrupted the entire church from within at its roots. It was Peter, it was, it was G. Campbell Morgan, a, a, a preacher, a, a famous preacher, who said this, the church has never been harmed or hindered by opposition from without. And when you look back through church history, we see that the church has received much opposition, great persecution, but it's it's always thrived the most when there's been that outward persecution. There's been a cleansing and a purity that's taken place, and, and the church has been added to. But he says this in contrast to it. He says, the church has never been harmed or hindered by opposition from without, He says, but it has been perpetually harmed and hindered from perils from within. And that's the greatest danger. The greatest danger is what can take place within the church by God's people as Satan will influence us into ungodliness. And so even though we may not see this kind of harsh punishment happening in a a literal sense today, the bottom line is, is I want us to know, is even though we who are all hypocrites at some time, we probably aren't at the risk of dropping down dead as a result of it, but I will tell you this, this hypocrisy does kill. It kills still today. What do I mean? In other words... For a Christian, the first thing that hypocrisy will kill is our Christian witness. You want to have your witness ruined before the rest of the world? Uh, Be a hypocrite because people will see the masks we wear. People will see those acts that we put on when we try to be something we're not. Rather being honest with them. Furthermore, hypocrisy will kill our joy. Here's the reason why, is because hypocrisy leads us to the place where we are analyzing and critical of others in order to justify our own deceitfulness. So it robs us of our joy, it kills our joy. The last thing that hypocrisy kills is our peace. Because when you're being a hypocrite, when you are living with a lie or with a deception, you live in fear that someday someone's going to really find you out for who you are. And we're robbed of our peace. It kills our peace. And as we consider the consequences of the sin of hypocrisy, we should remember the harsh words of rebuke, I think, that Jesus spoke against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And he spoke this harsh words to them in Matthew chapter 23 because their hypocrisy kept them from admitting their need for him. Remember, in Matthew 23, he said, he said "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' says he says you clean the outside but the inside's filthy he says you're like you're like whitewashed tombs all fancy on the outside but full of dead men's bones on the inside and listen we have to understand this in light of what we're called to because the christian life requires us it demands transparency So we can't hide behind masks in an attempt to pretend or be someone or something we're not. Here's the reason why. Because the very beginning of our faith, think about this, the very starting point of our faith, the very genuineness of our faith is rooted in the fact, fact that we recognize and admit and confess that there's nothing good inside of us and that we're in need of Jesus who alone is good. That we come before God Completely broken, completely empty, and in need of him for everything. And if we start there, why would we move away from that? So let us avoid this misery of trying to look like something we're not and and keep coming to God as we walk with him in honesty. Because when we do so, he promises to continue to make us into something new when we do. That sanctification. When we honestly come to him. We read on in verse 12 and it says now, and, though, and through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. So we're talking about the miraculous works that took place. And he says, and they, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch there in the temple. Yet none of the rest dared join them. So there was this huge group of people who knew what was going on and heard about Ananias and Sapphira and said, no, nah, I don't want nothing to do with that. But that group of people, it says, that group of people esteemed them highly. They, had a, they were still held in high regard. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. And the multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people as word went out, is what we're told, even beyond the cities and walls of Jerusalem, and, and, and those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were all, and they were all healed. And you see, these next set of verses, what I think they illustrate for us is an is a individual personal truth as well as a truth within the church. In that, when God purges sin from our life, when God purges sin out of the church, there's growth. There's growth inwardly, personally, and growth within the church when there's purity. And such is the case within the church as a whole. And this is what we were told after God judged sin and purged out Ananias and Sapphira. And with that being said, I want to say that the church here, at this church, our church, we will accept anyone who walks through the doors in their search to find and worship the true and living God. Anyone. I don't care what they believe. I don't care uh, who they are or what they've done, and neither should we. They're welcome here in their journey, in their search to find and worship the true and living God. However, guys, listen to this. If we as a church leave people who come through our doors to live, to continue to live like an unbelieving world and don't tell them about the call to God's standard, then we're not loving them. Or we say, that's wrong. God doesn't approve of that. That's not what he would have for you. There's a different way. There's a better way. And I say this because of many you already know, there is a portion of the church today who says that presenting God's standard as a way of life will only drive away those who are seeking him. I think that's absolute nonsense. And the, the, the truth of that is found in our text today because the text reveals that even though fear came upon those who heard about Ananias and Sapphira and some, according to verse 13, was unwilling to join them, there were still many, we're told here, who made these decisions to believe and to be saved. Decisions for Jesus. But also, decisions in light of what we read here, clearly, decisions for a life of purity to forsake the ways of the world, to live different, to be different. And furthermore, what we're told, and I love this part, that those who who, who didn't join them dared not join them, they still esteemed them highly. And this is because this first community of, of church of Christians had an excellent reputation for integrity. Do you see that? That's what's being revealed here. They were people of integrity. Not perfect, but when they were wrong, they admitted they were wrong. And if they didn't, they just dropped down dead apparently (laughs) at least in these two instances there's no other instances like this but everybody knew this and i don't know if people know this today because of the church's failure to live holy and pure lives everybody knew that it was a serious thing to be a follower of jesus Consequently, the church continued to be used miraculously by God. We read that and it grew exponentially as we're told at this time that it began to multiply as God increasingly added to the church. So let's just say this. Not only did... was Satan unable to defeat the God, the work that God was doing with an attack even from within the church, we see that that God does what he does best. God took what Satan intended for evil and he worked it for good. And that's a promise that we have for our church today and for our lives individually. If there is evil that is coming against you, we have this promise that God will work it to good. He'll work it to good. Listen, I hope we never are, and I don't think we are. I hope we're never the in or popular place, even within the church community, where people go, go to Calvary Chapel, just because it's popular, or it's the in place for people to hang out. I don't want us to be that, but what I do want is I want I want us to be this, and I want our lives to reflect this. I want, for those of us who have been... Um, touched by Jesus, who have come to Jesus, I want people around us to know and understand that um, we as believers are called and have a need to be in a place of purity. I, I, I desire, I think, that this church needs to continue to be a place where God's Word is the standard, not man's opinion. Our church needs to be a place that even if it's painful as we're convicted by the Holy Spirit of our own sin, of our own unrighteousness when we're called out that that we'll we'll remain unified in one accord with each other, in one accord with Jesus, that we won't run away from that. A place that um, may be uncomfortable at times when the Word of God is uncompromisingly taught, meaning verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line upon line, precept on precept. I mean, there are times, guys, where I come to passage and I'm like, oh, can we just skip over this? This is hard stuff. But it's God's word and it's truth and it needs to be brought forth. May we never turn away from that. May we always be a place like the early church of power and purity. A place of hope and encouragement. A place where the multitudes will gather together and bring their sick and bring their tormented. A place where Jesus resides so that we may abide in him and experience the healing and salvation that he brings. A place, I think, that we need to be a place that is an offense to those who are against God. I think it's a radical statement, but that's what we read here. And the early church was radical. They were an offense to those who were against God and these indignant religious leaders who opposed Jesus Christ. That's what we read in verse 17. It says, Then the high priest rose up. All these wonderful things going on, right? And the high priest rose up with all of them, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of the of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together and with all the elders of the church of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But, verse 22 when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found none inside. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be, especially in light of all the miraculous stuff that had been taking place. Like, what, what's going on now? So one came and told them, saying, Look, the man... The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name? Of course, that's the name of Jesus. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood on us. And now we know why they were indignant is because the truth was being brought out about what had happened to Christ and who did it. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our Father, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be the prince and savior, to give repentance. To Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we read here at the end of this, in verse 29, again, Peter repeating what he has spoken previously at the first time he stood before them in the courtroom setting that, you know, we need to obey God rather than men. And I think it's safe to say that this statement is a statement that we all agree with, right? Anyone disagree with that? You can raise your hand. We won't make too much fun of you. (laughs) Yeah, we ought to obey God rather than man. And and that can play itself out in the world today in in many different ways. But I think that this statement, this truth that we all agree with is something that we might too quickly pass over. Why? Because we live in a society where, where we are not commanded to abandon Jesus, where we're not told that we can't obey Jesus, that we can't preach in the name of Jesus. And I think it's possible that we're not too far removed from this kind of society being like this, where it would be a crime to do so. But the fact of the matter is, is the current problem isn't that we're not commanded to, 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 to not obey God. The problem is, is that we're seduced into not obeying God we're seduced into not obeying God. And we're done it, it happens it happens through these three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And this is what the world is constantly saturating us with. But we're, we're told in 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 and 17 to not love this world and the things of it. Why? Because if we love the world and the things of it, then the, the love of God isn't in us. And it says that these things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, which are of this world, it's passing away, quickly passing away. If you think about that in that terminology of passing away, why would we want to be a part of something that is dying? Why would we want to be connected to something that is dead? Death. It says here at the end of that passage in verse 17, but he who does the will of God abides forever that's the contrast. And, 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 and what is the will of God for our lives? The will of God for our lives is seen with the early church here is not just the Great Commission, but it's a call to purity. It's a call to holiness, to live differently than the rest of the world. And this call to live differently can be quickly compromised as we choose to obey man rather than God. Can it not? And this is done when we place the things of this life in the place that only God deserves, Sadly, with the state of this current world, there are lukewarm Christians, those who are neither hot or cold for Jesus. We're told about that in the book of Revelation that there are those like that. There was a whole church, the church of Laodicea was like that. And and, and when we're in this state of lukewarmedness, we we can be easily seduced into disobeying God. And so there's no need to threaten with jail or death because we just willingly do it. Today we're told that uh, statistics show this 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 truth. I think it's I think it's probably a little high, but I'm just going to go with it. That in the United States, current reports show that 60% of the population still cra- claims to be evangelical Christians, the Christianity for their faith. I'm surprised with that. I, I thought it would be less. But because of that, I suspect that most of our Christian population today would deny that they are Christians if it meant going to jail or it meant being put to death. That's just an opinion. I would say this, unfortunately, we live in a time when it's easy to be the type of Christian who openly chooses to obey men rather than God. And also, it's easy today to be the type of Christian who who chooses to obey God instead of men and, and attend church on a regular basis and never be challenged with God's standard. And this is because many won't make a stand like the early church did and say to their fellow brother or sister, "Listen, we ought to obey God rather than men." And so the example of obedience here in the passage with the apostles returning to the temple, by the way, that's mind-blowing to me. The angel sets them free and says, "Go right back." And they're like, "Yeah, let's go." I mean, I'll be like, "Are you?" Sh-? I'll be like, "Are you sure? Don't you see what just happened here? But they went back. They were obedient just after they had been freed. And, and, and uh, of their obedience, they continued to preach and they continued to be witnesses of Jesus and His resurrection. And I think, I think that's to be admired. I think that's to be followed. That's an example we should follow today. And it's the same message that was preached of of Jesus being the Savior that we need to bear witness to today. It it was the message that God wanted these religious leaders to hear over and over and over again, even though they had heard it for many times. And and I'm reading through this and I'm studying. I'm I'm like, God, enough with these guys. They're actively against your people. And yet, Peter, again, tells them about the gospel, tells them about Jesus. And I'm blown away by that until I read 2 Peter 3, verse 9, which tells us that God's will is that none would perish, but that all would be saved. God has no desire. None. He desires to send nobody to hell. He desires for people to be saved. Every man, every woman. That's his wish. God is long-suffering, He's merciful, and He's full of grace. And this is why He continued through Peter and the other apostles to tell these religious leaders about their need to repent and to believe in Jesus for salvation. And, And maybe today that's you here. You're here today, and you've heard this gospel message before, and you've done nothing with it, and you're hearing it again and and if so you need to understand that god's giving you another chance god's giving you another chance to hear this message of redemption and salvation and forgiveness of sins so that you too can be saved from eternal death in verse 33 we read on and we bring close to this chapter it says when they heard this these religious leaders they were furious and plotted to kill them then one in the council stood up a pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law He was held in respect by all of the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And then he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves on what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up. Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain. And all who who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him, and he also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now that, that statement has some truth to it, right? Well, I don't talk about this advice here in a minute. And they agreed with him, and and when they had called the apostles and beaten them i think that's much less than what they originally had planned to do i think they had plans to kill them they said that they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go and so they departed from the council from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ What a testimony. What a witness. And again, the nation of Israel is represented by the leaders, rejected Jesus as Lord and Messiah, and in turn, they were furious and had plotted to kill the apostles. Now, it's likely that I truly believe that this leader, Gamaliel, hadn't given this advice that that's what had happened. The apostles that were there before him would have been put to death. They received more than a beating. But again, we see that God's bigger than any circumstance and nothing can prevail against the plan or the work of God. No man can. And in regards to this advice, I think it can appear on the surface to be wise counsel to stay neutral. I think the idea of not warring against God is true, but really this was a call to be neutral, to, 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 to find out whether or not God was in it or not. However, I believe it was, was not good advice because two things. Number one, they had a ton of evidence already at this point. I mean, where Peter walked and his shadow was being cast, people were being healed by that. It was all in the open. There was tons of evidence. I don't know what else they needed to to kind of make a decision. We talked about this in detail last week. But the other reason why I don't think it's good advice is because of this simple fact. No one can be neutral about Jesus. No one can be neutral about Jesus And to delay in making a decision once the good news message, the truth of Jesus has been presented, is to court disaster. Because Jesus says, I can save your soul from hell. And to not accept that, to wait in this place of neutrality, is to maybe be knocking on those gates of hell. Remember, God had given evidences through these signs and wonders and there was no reason to put off a decision. But yet, by waiting, these religious leaders were once again just rejecting and a decision to not choose, a decision to wait is again just a rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in Luke eleven twenty-three. 23. He said that we're either for Him or against Him. There's no middle ground. And in that, that passage of Scripture, the book of Revelation to the church of Laodicea. He said, I know your works that you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were hot or cold. So then because you are lukewarm, he says, neither for me or against me in this idea and this thought, neither hot or cold. He says, I'm just going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, that's a mind-blowing thing to think of because he wasn't speaking to unbelievers. He was speaking to believers in the church today or, or back then and, and even today. And maybe we found ourselves in our faith, in our walk, in our call to purity and holiness in this place of lukewarmness, and it needs to stop. The bottom line is that place in the middle when it comes to Jesus is never a good place. Chris, if you want to come up, I'm going to close with this. When we die, if Jesus returns before we die, each of us will be asked by God, What did we do with his son? Furthermore, We as believers are going to be asked, what did we do with the life that He's given us to live? And listen, this this idea of, well, I was waiting to see how it all played out, God's not going to receive that as an acceptable answer. Or this idea of just walking the line so that we're not an offense to this world, or you don't want to offend anybody so we didn't walk in, 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 in fervency for the Lord, that's not going to fly either. And on that judgment day, one of two things will happen. For the unbeliever it says they're going to be cast into outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. And for the believer who's not living on fire for the Lord, who is not answering that call to purity and holiness and storing up treasures in heaven, the Bible says that there's a judgment coming where there will be a fire applied to, to the works, to, in other words, to the measure of our lives. And the Bible says that we're going to suffer loss. And I pray that that's not so. I pray that with the time that we have left, with the life that we've been given to live, for the minutes, the hours, the days, the years, we don't know how much that is going to be. I pray that we wouldn't waste any of it. And that in the name of Jesus, we would proclaim His love to the world around us. And Father, I thank You for this time. I thank You for each person here. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here who maybe, Lord, is for the first time or for another time hearing the truth of the Gospel and lord they've not yet surrendered to you i pray lord that they would not do would not leave this place without committing their lives to you without asking for forgiveness but they would receive you and the hope and the salvation that you offer and lord for us as as believers may we if we came in in a state of lukewarmness lord towards you and for you that that we would not We would make a a commitment to not live like that any longer. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand?